Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss the alleged assassination of a Canadian citizen and the latest from Nagorno-Karabakh. It's all coming up. Hey there, John. How are you? I am doing pretty well today, Ethan. Thank you. I think I've just about recovered from our uh, our travails in the chaos of New York last oh, week. How you? about yourself? Oh, that's, you're very lucky. I have not. I, I'm, I'm firmly staking my flag in the ground of still recovering <laughs> from our time in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It was, it was a ridiculous week. It was. It was a lot of fun. I'm still catching up on sleep. We're still catching up on the news because it's actually been a couple of weeks since we've covered the news because we you know we were in New York covering the UN General Assembly last week and we we took Tuesday off uh, for reasons we'll discuss a bit later and as usual John this happens every time we missed a lot what, what any did anything big catch your attention yeah the the international news cycle has a, a pesky habit of not uh, not following our schedules which is very inconvenient <laughs> for us um, I, I, I hardly even uh, you know take bathroom breaks anymore <laughs> that, that falls into the category of probably too much information <laughs> no um stuff that caught my attention yeah okay so what we're talking the last 10 days i think that 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 North Korean, that U.S. soldier who jumped the border into North Korea, I noticed he has been summarily booted out of North Korea. I, I don't actually know what's going on there, but he's back in uh, U.S. custody now, I believe. In Africa, France, I think, managed to finally withdraw its ambassador from Niger. Uh, the ambassador had been held hostage for a while um, by supporters of the coup. Niger obviously had a coup recently. Um, and oh, of course, how could I forget China's defense minister going AWOL, uh, Li Shangfu, we, th- we suspect has been purged for corruption or something else. So it's been a, a fairly busy week. And then I know the one that you're leading me to, Ethan, was what was something that happened when we were in, in uh, New York, and that's uh, Canada accusing India of carrying out uh, a fairly crazy extraterritorial, extrajudicial assassination, no other word for it, of a, of a Canadian citizen in Vancouver. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, that small thing. Just yeah. That, uh, you, you left that for the end. <laughs> exactly. Uh, John, say more. I mean, what, what's, what the heck is going on? What's the specific allegation here? Well, why don't we let uh, Justin Trudeau, he of, uh, you know, the many memes, but also the Canadian Prime Minister, why don't we let him make the accusation in his own words? Over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. It is contrary to the fundamental rules by which free, open, and democratic societies conduct themselves. Okay, so let's try our best to ignore the ferocious coughing in that clip and, and get down mm-hmm. to details. Uh, who, whoever you are in that clip, please get a, a Ricola. Uh, <laughs> see a doctor, yeah, exactly. See a doctor. John, what, what do we know about the alleged victim here, Hardeep Singh Nijar? Yeah, okay. So um, he was born in the Indian state of Punjab in, in the 70s uh, to a Sikh family. He was a Sikh. He emigrated to Canada in uh, the 90s, 95, I believe, um, to seek political asylum in Canada. Uh, 
He had his claim rejected a bunch of times before he became a citizen uh, of Canada back in 2007. Right. That citizenship piece is, is key. Yeah, exactly. So he was a Canadian citizen when he was, when he was killed. But um, he became involved in a, in a separatist movement called the Khalistan Movement. I hope I pronounced that right, um, which aims to kind of create an independent Sikh state in Punjab with, within India. You know, Canada is a pretty good place traditionally for for in, involvement in this kind of movement. Um, it has the largest Sikh population in the world outside of India, which was a fact I didn't know about. Um, and obviously it has a strong tradition of free speech and, and freedoms generally uh, because the Khalistan movement is actually banned in India, but it's been able to kind of live on and, and, and sort of, you know, survive in Canada. So many questions from there. And, and first, just to get our, our terminology straight, you know, sometimes, John, you'll say, Seek as in seeking political asylum. Sometimes you'll say seek as in seek. Uh, but leaving that aside, I mean, first of all, I can't say I've heard of the the Holistan movement. Uh, I noticed you didn't laugh at the joke. Anyways, how long has it existed? <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't realize it was a joke. Sorry, I thought, I thought you were genuinely trying to be help, helpful to our listeners. <laughs> oh, you can just insert this this joke later, right? <laughs> um, uh, no, to your to your question, um, since the thirties and. And the Sikhs are very visually striking. People will know them because part of their belief system is they wear the turbans. They're the Indian people who wear the turbans. And so those are the Sikhs that when we think about the Sikh movement. Um, it's been around since the 30s, as I said. Um, obviously, British rule was uh, in India. Uh, so it was coming to an end. It was a kind of a time of flux. And the movement for well, the Sikh the Sikh belief system, the Sikh identity and their, and their independence movement has been suppressed for decades. Um, I think Pakistan has tried to sort of support it on the edges, but it's basically been met with hostility by Indian authorities for a long time. Um, but the most intense moment, I think, of that conflict came in, in the mid-80s. Indian troops raided the Sikhs' uh, holiest site called the Golden Temple in, Puj in Punjab. It was a nine-day operation by the government, which resulted in deaths of hundreds of troops, Sikh militants, uh, civilians. It was really really nasty. Um, and a few months after that, the then Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was assassinated by her two Sikh bodyguards in retaliation. So hell of a lot of bad blood um, from, from those two events. And it set off, you know, all those incidents have set off anti-Sikh riots um, in Northern India. And, and, you know, people say that was actually orchestrated by the ruling party at the time, the Indian National Congress. But I think zooming out, Ethan, there's probably a pretty good reason you've not heard of it. Um, and it's because it's the, the, the Khalistan, the independent Khalistan movement, the Sikh nationalist movement is pretty much non-existent these days within India itself. Um, there's not a lot of support, not a lot of interest. Um, and it's primarily, I think you could say, mentioned by non-Sikhs to kind of drum up a, an opposition, a, a fear, a nationalist fervor, if you will, um, which is something we know India's Prime Minister Modi is pretty, pretty good at doing. Um, and so I think the remnants of the movement today exist mostly amongst the diaspora, the Sikh diaspora abroad, people like Hardy Singh Najjar, um, which is why Canada says India sent agents to assassinate him in British Columbia in June of this year. Right. And we, we heard Trudeau level that very allegation a bit earlier. What's his evidence? Well, nothing he's made public uh, and and I suspect nothing he will make public uh, anytime soon. Um, Trudeau said his government shared the, the evidence that they do have with Canadian allies um, who have each issued statements expressing 
their concern over the allegations. Um, I, I think actually while we were in New York, the US ambassador to Canada said that the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Network, which is US, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and Australia, um, was Best for last. Ex- well, exactly right. The most important for last. Um, <laughs> but that that Five Eyes, Five Eyes intelligence sharing arrangement was crucial to these allegations. So I think that means essentially that one of the countries shared some information that had come to light about it. Um, and you know, I think I think it goes without saying that Trudeau is not an idiot. He um, announced this in Parliament. He's been doing this job for a long time. So it, he's obviously got some evidence that he feels pretty confident in uh, that Canada has um, of of India's involvement. Yeah. And well, and, and India had something to say about this too. Yeah, with you, uh, very, very frankly, uh, what we uh, what we told the Canadians. Uh, one, we told the Canadians that uh, this is not the government of India's policy. Two, we told the Canadians saying that, look, if you have something specific, if you have something relevant, you know, let us know. We are open to looking at it. So that was Indian Foreign Minister S. Jai Shankar speaking last week at the prim and proper Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Yeah, right. And he actually met with um, the U.S. Secretary of State Blinken yesterday. So he's kind of continuing that that prim and proper diplomatic tour. Um, but I think it's fair to say that his, his uh, response there that you heard in the clip, um, the sort of official or the broader government response from India has been a lot more bellicose than his eloquent words there. Uh, I think one Indian government statement back uh, on the 19th of September said that, and quoting here, such unsubstantiated allegations seek to shift the focus from Khalistani terrorists and extremists who have been provided shelter in Canada and continue to threaten India's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Um, you know, they're pretty strong words that there's not a whole lot of remorse going on there, right? Um uh, yeah, so I think, well, I mean, to, to tie off what's happened so far, Canada expelled India's top diplomat in Canada, who they said essentially was like the chief of the intelligence, um, Indian intelligence agency in Canada. That's called the um, RAW, RAW, or the Research and Analysis Wing. So they kicked him out of, of Canada. And in as these things go, as you well know by now, India responded by <laughs> kicking out the Canadian ambassador in, in what is a very mature tit for tat. Yeah, I mean, hard, reading that statement, hard not to see some parallels between India's frustration with Canada's quote unquote harboring of Sikh separatists and Turkey's frustration that we've talked so much about uh, with Sweden's Sweden, harboring yeah. of Kurdish separatists. But John, going back to what you said a second ago about Canada having, you know, I, I guess a lot to lose. Trudeau not being willing to bring this forward to Parliament because the stakes are so high. What what is at stake? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, the Canadian Indian relationship, which is is no small thing. Um, but I think also it puts Canadian allies and Indian allies, um, but primarily the U.S. in that in a in a difficult position in the middle, right? Um, where they're kind of forced to choose between one of their oldest friends in Canada, a country with lots of you know, alliances, connections, all of that, uh, and one of the most important countries in the world at the moment, um, geopolitically speaking, in India. Uh, I think Western policymakers, well, actually policymakers everywhere, um, see India as a really, really kind of important counterweight um, to China. Uh, you know, India doesn't have a great relationship with China. It has a massive population, growing economy, strong military relatively stable democracy, although watch this space. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, on the other side, there's not a huge amount of trust in 
India or India's relationship with other countries because India doesn't tend to pick sides or if it does, those those uh, those relationships don't last for very long, as we've seen with uh, India kind of tacitly supporting Russia during the invasion of Ukraine. Um, you know, India is the, the, the pros at kind of marriages of convenience. So there's this kind of difficult relationship that a lot of countries, particularly in the West, have with India. Um, and I think the question of the US and others now is how do you side with the Canadians because obviously if this is true, which I, let's assume it is, um, you have to rebuke India for such a flagrant uh, transgression, but you kind of don't want to rebuke India too much because you want to make sure that India, that relationship is recoverable, right? Uh, it's a super difficult balance to strike. I mean, that's why they get paid the big, big bucks to be diplomats and we're, we're sitting here talking about it. I, I think it's interesting. You made a great comparison with Turkey and, and, and the Swedish situation. I think that's right. I also see some comparisons with the Jamal Khashoggi murder um, a few years back. I think that was what, 2018 when he, he was the chap, the journalist who was um, I mean, slaughtered is the right word, unfortunately, in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. Um, that put a huge strain on US-Saudi relations because the US couldn't sit by quietly and not say anything. And obviously the Saudis had been caught in the act. So uh, I, I see some similarities. And if we follow that through to the end, Biden visited and bumped fists with the crown prince uh, in Saudi Arabia last year. Yeah, after promising to turn him, quote, into a pariah. Right, during the campaign. I remember that, exactly. So, yeah. you know, geopolitics has a weird way, or, uh, you know, international interests have this weird way of creating short memories. Um, so, you know, <laughs> this story, the Canadian-Indian situation, it might be a worse actual event, given that it was a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil, um, assassinated by foreign agents. Uh, you know, I think it'll capture less attention because it, isn't as grim and it isn't as kind of, you know, headline grabbing. Uh, but I think that will probably suit the West. I think they'll probably want to move on and try and patch things up with India and, and sort things out behind the scenes sooner rather than later. I've already forgotten what we're talking about. Today's episode is sponsored by Nautilus. Do you wonder about the big questions? You know, how did we get here? Where are we going? Are we alone in the universe? If so, join over 150,000 curious subscribers of the Nautilus newsletter, where you'll find cutting-edge science unraveled by the very brightest living thinkers. Check out the show notes to sign up. All right, welcome back. So, John, we're talking about Nagorno-Karabakh again today. And I know we've spoken about this issue a lot in recent months, recent weeks, but only because events on the ground are changing so quickly. Can, can you catch us up to speed on where we are? Yeah, I think we ended the last time we talked about this by saying we're probably going to have to talk about this again pretty soon. And, and here yeah. we are. Um, really quickly to, to remind listeners, Nagorno-Karabakh is uh, an ethnically Armenian enclave in internationally recognized part of Azerbaijan. So it's an enclave within Azerbaijan uh, that's been self-governed for decades by the Nagorno-Karabakh population. Um, in 2020, Armenia and Azerbaijan actually fought a brief war that saw Azerbaijan reclaim the areas that kind of surround Karabakh. Um, and that gave it the ability to cut off the enclave from Armenia, you know, blockade it essentially, um, prevent medicines and food and water getting into it if it, if it so wanted. Um, the last time we spoke, 
it seemed that Azerbaijan and Armenia had agreed to reopen a, a humanitarian corridor to deliver those things, food, aid, and so on to the residents. Um, but in a, you know, I was certainly surprised by this. I think it was a pretty stunning turn of events uh, last week when we were in New York. And and while the world was perhaps focused on on uh, the UN General Assembly, uh, Azerbaijani forces launched a lightning fast 24-hour assault on the region, took control from the self-governing acting government of, of the region. Um, and then the latest news um, that we heard just yesterday is that the self-governing Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh, as it's kind of officially known, has been dissolved by the Azerbaijani government and it won't exist as of the 1st of January next year. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. I mean, like you said, the whole world was uh, distracted here. Unga had something to do with it, but Azerbaijan was negotiating. It seemed like they were open to finding a mutually yeah. agreeable solution here. What, so what happens to the, to the people of Karabakh? Well, it's, I mean, if you, if you're kind of following this in the news, we're seeing something unfold. That's pretty remarkable right before our eyes. Um, you know, most of the population, or at least, you know, a huge chunk of the population of the region is fleeing all at once to, to Armenia. So that thus far, and, and you know, this number will almost certainly rise um, between the time we're talking about it now and, and when we hit publish on the podcast. But as of now, sixty-six thousand of the region's hundred and twenty odd thousand people have packed their belongings, left their homes, you know, piled it all into a car or into a van or onto a roof or whatever, whatever it is, and they're and they're driving to Armenia, but they're in absolute standstill traffic, gridlock. Um, and I think many analysts assume that there will be no Armenians left in that area in just a few weeks' time. It really is just a mass exodus of people. Um, and I'd, I'd encourage people to look at some of the photos because it's kind of wild when you think about transporting that many people that quickly. Um, the, photo, the photos are quite shocking. Um, and then as they're leaving, Azerbaijani military forces are conducting what I think have been described as incredibly thorough checks on everyone leaving. They say to check for war criminals, um, you know, interpret that as you want. But I know that they've arrested a ton of top Karabakh officials, including the leader or the former leader of the region, yeah. um, and taken them to Azerbaijan um, uh, for, to put them in prison. Yeah. No, other way, no other way of putting it. You know, um, people may have been, you know, we mentioned we, we took Tuesday off. Uh, people might have been <laughs> wondering why. The answer is that I'm, I'm Jewish. I was observing our holiest day, Yom Kippur. And John, you know, when I was growing up, a common refrain that, that we would say, you know, in my house, at Hebrew school, wherever it was, was was never again, meaning never again should the world allow a people to be erased from history the way Jews almost were erased during the Holocaust. And as I'm looking at the, the photos, I'm wondering, is that what we're seeing here? Is Are, are, are people being erased from history? And if so, what did the world miss? Yeah, I mean that is it's there's no way of avoiding that question, right? That's the question that is that you you kind of have to however unpleasant it is, you have to ask that about this kind of stuff. Um you know, it's not it's what I mean it's worth remembering firstly that this isn't the first time that ethnic Armenians have been targeted this way. That's very important to to note. Uh, I generally think it's pretty dangerous to kind of compare tragedies. I don't think it's helpful and I I don't think it, it you know is useful, but but you are right that the net effect on the people isn't very different. People targeted for their ethnicity or for their, you know, whatever group they belong to, and they're being forced to flee because of that ethnicity. 
Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I, I don't know what the world could have done to, to stop this right now. Um, you know, there's, it's not that there haven't been warning signs, that there were plenty. The former head of the International Criminal Court warned a few weeks ago that a genocide in Karabakh could very easily take place. Um, and even if there wasn't kind of a mass killing, which is what I think we most associate when we think of genocide, the events could be classified as genocide anyway, because they are, you know, targeting a people and forcing them to abandon their homes and, and their, you know, leave their cultural identity behind. But, but what can the world do? They chastise, condemn, call for negotiations, but unless countries are willing to send in armies to protect persecuted people, um, you know, the more it's, it's, it's really, might makes right in this kind of situation and more powerful country can do what it wants. Um, you know, I suppose Armenia, the country, um, could have intervened on behalf of the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and they certainly did try to scare the Azerbaijani government by training with US troops earlier this month. But, you know, that would have risked a wider war. Um, Armenia would have probably lost that because, you know, it's not like the US, I don't think, would get involved in another war at this point in time. Um, and then, of course, we have this other angle is that, Armenia has been traditionally supported by Russia, um, and and that's arguably why the region has continued to exist to now. Uh, Azerbaijan Azerbaijan couldn't really invade Nagorno-Karabakh because up until now Russia was kind of playing this guarantor peacemaker role on the side of the Armenians. Um, and you know I'm no expert in the politics of this region, but I've seen a ton of people who are experts say that the fact that Azerbaijan waltzed in so quickly and without warning is kind of evidence that Russia wasn't able to really do much except sort of stand there and I think they were involved in facilitating the ultimate the ceasefire agreement that did did end up in place. Um, it's also a sign of Russia's deteriorating credibility in the region, right? Um, you know, just yesterday we saw Kazakhstan and Germany striking a supply deal, Kazakhstan saying they're not going to help Russia evade sanctions. You have this, Kazakh, uh, this uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia situation. So I think a lot of countries in Russia's orbit are now contemplating what a far weaker Russia means for them. But, um, you know, to circle back to your original question, this is an undoubted tragedy and it's one that is a, you know, that is subject to this very, very unsatisfying conclusion that there's probably not much that could have been done to stop it. Uh, well, thank you very much, John. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ethan. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, have you ever heard of Kuto Misto? It was a tiny 6.5 square kilometer micro state that was split up by Spain and Portugal on this day, 159 years ago. But it might be making a comeback. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see why. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Tuesday. <laughs>